Let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll ask him to teach us from his word today. Lord, we ask that as we open your word that the words of that song that that I depend on you would be our collective and corporate prayer, Lord, that we indeed do depend on you. Lord, that we are fallible and you are infallible in all things, in your ways, in your word, in your commands. Lord, we ask that we would see that perfection in you, that our hearts would recognize, our minds would obey, that we depend on you, we need you. Lord, our prayer, even being just an act of dependence, knowing that we cannot and you can. Lord, I pray that that would not just be knowledge for us, Lord, but that would be wisdom applied in our lives, that we would truly depend on you, that we would truly turn to you in all things and to seek your face. Lord, I ask for our missionaries as they are around the world that you would keep them safe, that you would give them fruit in their ministries, that they would see people around the world coming to faith in Christ, repenting of their sins and putting their eternal hope in you. Lord, we ask that you would give them Give them hope when it's difficult. Give them encouragement when they feel alone. Help them to have people to rally beside them, whether it be us from afar or people right near them. Lord, they have committed their lives to you and to the gospel and the, the will that you have for them. And we just pray that you would strengthen them in that time. Lord, for us, we also know that you've called us according to your will that your word would be true in our lives, that it would be evident, that people would see that our lives are different, that that would give us an opportunity to proclaim the good news, that while they are still looking for hope, that we have found hope, that you have given us hope through Christ. Lord, we ask that your word today would be like a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, Pray that your word would go before us and show us where to go, that we would walk in your ways. Lord, teach us your commands. Show us what you have for us that we might continue to conform our lives to Christ, being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you uh, don't yet know... Dave Vickery, who's on staff with us, and Mary Vickery had their baby uh, just a couple days ago, and so we're very excited for them. Yeah, you can clap for them. They, uh, their first baby, and so it's, it's all brand new and everything's fun for them. I like babies just in general. We've got a bunch of them. You know, but I was a, <laughs> I mean that literally, uh, you know, it's, it, it made me think when I was thinking about uh, our passage today in Philippians, the origin of love. You know, where did love come from? Where did it originate? And don't get ahead of me. I'll give you the answer in a minute, uh, where love came from. But as I was thinking of the baby, I believe her name is Esther. I was looking for, yeah, Esther, okay. I wanted to make sure I got that right. I was looking for Dave and Rosemary, and I was like, Give me a nod. Uh, but, you know, as I was thinking about the baby, you know, when you're a parent, you, you generally have a natural love for your children. It's not something that you have to attempt. You don't have to think through it. It's not like you wake up every day and have to decide, okay, today I'm going to, well, let me take that back. Most of the time, you don't have to wake up and say, I'm going to love this child. You know, it, it's a natural love from a parent to a child. It's just what God has created us to do. And then we have this passage that Paul is talking about, which is an unnatural love sometimes, where we are saying, I am choosing to love others even when it doesn't come naturally, even though it's difficult. And those two things are often contrasted because we, we want love to be organic and natural and just happening. But the Bible doesn't say to love others when it's natural and organic and easy. 
We're just told to love one another. So that's the context that I want to have as we look at this passage, that we are called to love one another. And you'll remember last week we went through Philippians 1, verses 3 through 8, and we looked at and talked about how Paul doesn't give any explicit commands. He gives ideas of what it looks like to be a mature follower of Christ. And even though he does not give them the commands, the mandates, that he models to them what Christianity should look like. And he continues that in this passage. So if you're with me in Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 9 through 11. Paul continuing in his letter, he says, And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So where does this love come from? Paul says that I pray this. So he starts with, in the verse 3, he said, I'm giving thanks to God, always praying with you in my every prayer. Now in verse 9, he says, And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. I pray that your love, so where does love come from? If you don't yet know, love comes from God. God is love. God is the source of love. It is part of his nature. It's part of who he is. And God has great love for us. So keep your finger in Philippians and then turn back to Romans chapter 5. And we're going to look at not only that God does love us, but what that looks like practically. So Romans chapter 5. All right, Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 2, Paul says, We have also obtained access through him, that is Jesus, we have access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So Paul's saying we have access to Jesus through faith into a grace that God has given us. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we have this hope that what that song that we sang two songs ago, Abide, it's talking about that as I pass through death and I enter rest. That's the hope that Paul's talking about here. The hope of the glory of God is that one day what God has promised will come to fruition in each of our lives. That whether Christ returns for his church as he said he would, or we pass through death and we enter rest, the hope of a Christian believer is that one day I will be with the Lord. So that's where Paul starts. And he says in verse 3, And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So this hope that we look forward to, that a Christian looks forward to and says, my hope is not here in the things that I have, the skills that I have, the abilities, the money. My hope is not here, but my hope is somewhere else in heaven. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So the hope is resting on God's love for us. And then Paul goes on to give evidence for God's love. So God loves us. Paul says our hope of eternity is based on God's love. And here's the evidence, verse 6 of Romans 5. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, 
then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? So Paul's saying that our hope of eternity rests in the love of God, which has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. The evidence of that is that God sent Christ at just the right time to die for us. The love of God is made manifest in God sending Christ to die. That's verse 8. God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when Paul, back in Philippians, is talking about love, Paul's going back and spanning of, this is how we even know what love is. Apart from God, we can't even know love because God is love. Any discussion of love doesn't start with a feeling or an emotion. It starts with God and his nature because God is love. So when Paul then goes on and says in verse 9 of Philippians, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge. Again, Paul's not talking about an emotional love or a love that comes and goes or a love for something that I may grow out of. Paul's talking about the love that God has for us, demonstrated, selfless, a service, a kindness, grace, and mercy, the love that Paul is saying that your love will keep on growing in knowledge is a love that we have experienced from God through Christ that then we give to other people. Okay, that's the love that Paul's talking about here, that our love will keep on growing in knowledge. So we have a foundation of love, and then the love will keep on growing in knowledge. Knowledge you're well aware, is to know something. It's to have information either by experience or by education. So either you have experienced something and now you know it, or someone has taught you something, and because of that teaching, you now know it. Information or a skill or something that is that knowledge. Now, some of us, learn best by experience in often unfortunate ways. Some of you are wise and you'll just take the education when it's given to you. For example, fire is hot. The person who needs to learn by experience would touch it to make sure that it's true and thereby gain the knowledge that fire is hot. The person on the other side would be told, fire is hot, don't touch it. And they'd say, okay, I just believe you that fire is hot. So that's the idea of knowledge being gained either through experience or through education. When you take that knowledge that fire is hot and you say, because it's hot, it will burn me, I shouldn't touch it, that's wisdom. Wisdom is taking something that you know and putting it into practice. You can't have effective knowledge without putting it into practice and having some kind of wisdom as a result of it. We'll get to that in a minute, but knowledge without implementation is useless. Okay, other examples of knowledge. It's one you've probably heard. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but not putting it in a fruit salad. Okay? Knowledge is knowing that the shortest path between two points is a straight line, but not trying to drive across the freeway the wrong way. And knowledge is knowing that Jesus served others and that I too should serve others. If you want to get your pen out, you can start writing your name here. I'm, I'm going somewhere with this part about Jesus. Jesus served others is knowledge. Knowing that you too should serve others is implementing that knowledge in wisdom, okay? Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Wisdom is you knowing that since Jesus loves the little children, you should too. Now you write your name on it, now on the back side. Wisdom is knowing that since Jesus was a teacher, I should be a teacher, 
And when we combine those things, you just check that second box that says children's or youth ministry. And you're taking your knowledge that Jesus loves the little children, that Jesus said, let them come to me, that he cares for them, that he was a teacher. And then Levon will call you and we'll find a time that works for you to serve in children's ministry. That's knowledge being applied. You will be wise. That's wisdom. Verse 9, though. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge. That your love will grow in knowledge. Continuing to grow in knowledge is continuing to ask ourselves, how in this situation do I best reflect Christ? What would Jesus do with these emotions and feelings I have? What would Jesus do with this situation or with these people? How would Jesus act? How can my love keep on growing in knowledge when applied to a situation? That's taking the love and letting it continue to grow. Okay, so love continues to grow in knowledge, and Paul continues, and in every kind of discernment. So he prays that their love will continue growing in knowledge and in every kind of discernment. Well, discernment is knowing where and how to apply the knowledge. Okay, wisdom is just doing it, and discernment is having wisdom enough to know when and where to do and to not do. Okay, so knowledge kind of takes us deep like a river, and it gives us a deep foundation of who God is and what God expects, but then discernment helps guide that river so it doesn't just cause destruction. So knowledge gives us understanding gives us information, either through experience or education, and then discernment helps us know when and where to apply that as wisdom. Now, these three things go well together. Love, knowledge, and discernment. So that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. So love without knowledge is often unwise. Love without knowledge is unwise. Someone who loves but has no knowledge will rush into things in love and do unwise things because they don't even have a foundation of knowing this is not something I should be doing. Often, though, still done with a good heart. I love someone, so I'm going to do something that is unwise. The inverse of that, knowledge without love is usually legalism. If you have knowledge, but you don't have love, you start to resemble the Pharisees. They knew everything there was to know, but they had no love. So they condemned, and they told people what to do, but they wouldn't do it themselves because they had knowledge, but no love. So love without knowledge is usually unwise. Knowledge without love is usually legalism. And then you bring discernment, and discernment applies knowledge lovingly. Okay, so discernment is knowing how should I take the love that I feel for someone and the knowledge of God that I have and act on it. If we don't act on that, we're missing what Paul is trying to teach. Paul is not just giving information that we might have information. He's trying to change lives. He's trying to build people into mature followers of Christ. So, one who follows Jesus will demonstrate love. Okay, so if we claim to be followers of Jesus, then we will demonstrate love that Paul's talking about. We'll demonstrate love toward unbelievers, toward people in the church that are believers. We'll demonstrate love toward other churches. We as Christians will show love to other people because God has loved us. Because, Paul says, the preceding verse in verse 8, that he loves them and he misses them with the affection of Christ Jesus. It's a real love that he has for them. He's not having to try to conjure up this feeling of love and force himself into feeling love. He loves them because he is loved by God. 
when we take this from the top down, that God has loved us by sending Christ. Christ has loved us through his sacrifice. We choose to love others because the Holy Spirit wrote it down that we should. Through Paul, through the Apostle John, through writers throughout the Bible, God loves us and sent Christ. Christ loves us and was willing to sacrifice. The Holy Spirit said, write it down that they too should love each other because that's the picture that we have. And beyond that, there's no way to be a Christian. There's no way to be a Christian and not love others. If you claim to be a Christian and you don't love others, there's something wrong. There's no other way to be a Christian and not love others. The one who does not love others does not love God. Love is evidence of our Christianity. Love is evidence that we follow and believe Christ. Love is evidence of our new birth. Let's turn toward the end of your Bible. We're going to look at the, the two letters of First and Second John. It's a couple chapters over, but keep your hand in Philippians. We'll, we'll come back and forth a couple times. So when I say that there's no way to be a Christian and not love others, I don't want you just to believe me. Because I'm fallible. I'm often wrong. You can ask my wife. She would tell you that I'm wrong. Very Don't ask her, please. She's not here right now. <laughs> if she's not live streaming right now, we'll just keep this between us. Just take it from me. I am wrong very often. I don't want to be wrong. It's just my natural way is to be wrong about things. And so I ask for forgiveness and I apologize. But when I say that there's no other way except for love, that if you don't love others, that you can't be calling yourself a Christian, those aren't just my words. So I want to bring you back to the Bible, written through the Holy Spirit, given to these writers from God himself to us. So we're going to look at 1 John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7, where John the writer says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Listen to verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. So verse 11, if God has loved us in this way, this way being what he just said, that God sent Christ to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, if God loves us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. Uh, verse 16, toward the end, God is love and the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. In this, Love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. So Paul, or the Apostle John is kind of going back to that original idea that Paul had in Romans, that our hope is not fixed on anything else except for the love of God. The love of God being demonstrated in Christ, our love likewise also being demonstrated. Verse 18, 
There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. One more time, if verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this we have as a command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother or sister. If we don't love others, we don't know God because God is love. It is who he is, it is what he is, and it's his own nature. So for us to be conformed to the nature of God means to be like him. And if he loves and is love, and we say, I do not love, instead I hate, then we are not like God. Okay, so the picture that Paul, the Apostle John, almost every New Testament writer gives us is God loves and therefore we should love. So how do we love God? What does it mean to actually love God? I'm glad you asked rhetorically. Verse 1 of chapter 5 of 1 John gives us that answer. John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. Listen to this verse three. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. So if we then are to love God and show God that we love him, how do we do that? John says to keep his commands. It's not a hard thing to understand, but it's a hard thing to do. To know God's commands are one thing. To do them is often a very different thing. So to know them, I mean, that's an easy thing. We gain knowledge. We read the Bible. We study the Bible. We, we gain all kinds of knowledge. But what we don't want to end up doing is having knowledge but no love. So we can gain all of this knowledge but there still has to be an end result. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark 12. Someone asked him, what's the greatest command? Like, you know, if you had to narrow it down to just one thing, Jesus, what would it be? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then Jesus gives him a freebie. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. So what does it mean to know God's commands? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others. Those two things are one command, essentially. Because if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it will naturally force you to love others. If you don't love God, loving others is going to be very difficult because you're trying just to do it in your flesh and we're not lovable people. It's not easy to love most people. I get it. I'm not easy to love. You're not easy to love. But when we love each other with the love that God has through Christ, that Christ has through his sacrifice, we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that naturally creates an overflow of love that we love others with. So when Jesus says the greatest command is to love God and love your neighbor, those are part of the same action. When we love God, we naturally begin to love others. And with John, or with, uh, with Paul in Philippians, he starts with love because he's keeping the first thing the first thing, that your love will grow in knowledge not that your knowledge will grow in love. He wants them to start with love. Because when they have love, knowledge is a great addition. 
because it teaches you better and more and how to love. When you add discernment, discernment to love teaches how to be discerning, but still done in love. So to love God is to keep his commands. To keep his commands is to do what he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others. And how do we keep his commands? Go back to 2 John. I'll just read this verse. 2 John 5. I'm not writing you a new command, but one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And then John says, this is love, that we walk according to his commands. And this is the command that you've heard from the beginning, that you walk in love. So John's saying that if we are to keep God's commands, that we will walk in love. Obeying what God has commanded us to do is simply walking or living our life in love. So again, easy to say, but difficult to do. So I'm going to give you an example. One way that we can walk in love or to live in love is to constantly be examining our motives. Why am I doing what I am doing? Why am I choosing to do this action? Why am I choosing to love this person? If it's selfish, then I need to pray and ask God to give me an unselfish heart toward that person or toward that thing. And examining why we're doing it and and what the expected result might be. So for example, I was talking to a man this week and he was saying that he saw his neighbor out his front window across the street and she was an elderly lady and she was trying to trim a bush that had grown to block her whole front window. She was out there with a pair of hand shears, and he said she had been out there since before he woke up, and it was now midday, and she was still out there and had hardly made any progress. So he decided, I'm going to go help her. So he goes over and takes tools and goes over and did not make it very far. He's recovering from cancer, and he had chemo, and he just couldn't last long enough to actually help her. So much so that he said he started to feel faint and he started to feel dizzy. And so he just laid down in her front lawn. And he said, she came over and she felt terrible. Do I call an ambulance? He's like, no, no, I just need to rest for a minute. So he rested and eventually he felt better. He got up and walked back across the street and sat down and wasn't able to finish what he had wanted. When he was telling me this, I was looking at it from a whole different perspective. He was looking at, I was wanting to finish this job. I told him, the way I see it is, you were just showing her love. Whether it was two minutes or two hours, your intention was to love her. And you did that. You loved her well, even though you couldn't accomplish what you wanted to accomplish. So later that afternoon, he's still at the house and said, I didn't feel good enough to even go back over there. But then he sees his neighbor walk across the street with shears and other stuff and finish the bush. And so the next day, his neighbor's out in front and he says, hey, thank you for going and helping the lady across the street. He said, oh, no problem. I watched her do it for a couple hours and she was not making progress. So then I watched you do it for a few minutes and you were not doing it either. And I thought, okay, well, now it's my turn that I have to step in and like, try to finish. And so I told him, I was like, that's a great opportunity. Now you go back to him and tell him, can I tell you the reason why I did it? The Bible says that we're to love people, that we're to show that love. We're to take care of the elderly, the widows, the people that need help, the orphans, the homeless. And so I saw her and I wanted to help her because I've been loved by God. And so I want to love others. It's a great open door that's natural for the gospel. And so now he can take that, but examining our motives, looking at why am I doing it? He had pure motives, just wanted to help. That's a great reason to love someone else. Another thing that I had thought of was that practice makes perfect. The more we open our eyes to see, 
and train our hearts to care, the more we're going to see the needs around us. Okay, so the more we open our eyes to see and train our hearts to care, we're going to see the needs around us. There are needs everywhere. Here in our own church body, at your work, in your family, at the rescue mission. I mean, you can name just about anywhere in town. The food bank, every one of the missionaries we support. There are needs everywhere. And the more we open our eyes to see and train our hearts to hear and to listen to what the needs are, the better we will be at trying to meet those needs in love. And then one other way is to listen beyond the words and try to listen to the heart. And for that, I want to take you to John chapter 3, a familiar passage where Jesus does this very thing. In John chapter 3, Jesus meets a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus starts asking Jesus a series of questions because Jesus is looking beyond the words that Nicodemus is saying and seeing his actual need. So in John chapter 3, Nicodemus was a man who came to Jesus at night, which is important. And he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. So Nicodemus comes at night because he doesn't want the other leaders of Israel to know that he has gone to Jesus. He doesn't want anyone else to know that he's gone to Jesus. And then he gives Jesus this compliment, but it's also missing something. So he says, we know that you've come from God because otherwise, how could you do what you're doing? So Jesus replies to Nicodemus. Sorry, I'm going to try to fix that. Jesus replies to Nicodemus and says to him, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That has absolutely nothing to do with what Nicodemus said. Nicodemus said, we know that you're from God because otherwise you couldn't do what you're doing. And Jesus says, unless someone's born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. What Jesus saw Nicodemus saying is, at night, in secret, I know you're from God and I know there's something going on, but I don't know what it is. Help me know what's going on here so that I can know better and have an actual knowledge and understanding of what all this is. And so Jesus tells him, Unless someone's born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Jesus looks beyond what Nicodemus says, and Jesus hears what Nicodemus is really trying to say. So if we listen in the same way of going beyond what someone is trying to say, we'll often hear what is at the root of the issue. But to do that, we have to stop and listen long enough where we're not just waiting for our turn to speak, and we're not just listening so that we can give them a Bible verse and send them on their way. Thanks. I was going to say it again. So that we don't just give someone a Bible verse and send them on their way. If you've ever been in any kind of grief or any kind of problem or any kind of pain or any kind of sadness, and someone tells you, it's going to be fine. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. See ya. That does not help. It's true, but in the moment, that often does not help. So Jesus listens to Nicodemus and gives him godly advice. If we want to be able to have the opportunity to speak the truth into someone's life, most of the time we have to care. And most of the time caring starts with listening. So by listening past the words and listening to the heart, we have an opportunity, like Jesus, to give someone what they really need. So why then do we, with all of this, why would we want to love others? Why would we want to love others? There's a lot of reasons why we would want to love others. I'm just going to give you one, but there's 
a lot. The one reason that I want to give you is because we want others to know Jesus. Why do we want to love others? Because we want them to know Jesus. Love for others is evidence that we love Jesus. Okay? So when we love others, we are giving evidence that we love Jesus. Our witness to them is proven by our love for them. Okay, again, not my words, but John, 14, John 13, Jesus says, I give you a new command. Love one another. Why? You might ask Jesus. Just as I have loved you, you're also to love one another. By this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So why would we want to love others? Because we want them to know Jesus. And how do we show them Jesus? We love one another. By this, which again is just talking about what he just said, if you love one another as I have loved you, everyone will know that you are my disciples. And just so Jesus is crystal clear, he adds that last part, if you love one another. So if you love one another, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another. And Jesus is like nodding his head like, you're following, right? It's loving one another will tell them that you follow me. Got it, guys? If you love one another. You know, it's like this. He really wants them to know what the purpose of loving others is. Because that's how they find salvation. Because God uses you to your neighbor to show that you love, to show that you care, to demonstrate as God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we demonstrate our love for Christ in that while our neighbor was suffering, trying to trim a bush, we walked over and helped. We choose to love others that they might see Christ. It's the whole point. So when Paul's saying that your love will keep on growing in knowledge, yes, knowledge is good, but it needs to result in a greater love. And in every kind of discernment, great to be wise and know what to do if it's done in love. And Paul continues in verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. That word approve you may approve, it means to examine or to interpret or to test and see if something is true. You know, when they, coins a long time ago, they would be minted with silver or gold or some kind of precious metal. But fraudsters would come and they would dip those non-expensive metals into an expensive metal and just have a thin coating on the outside of a brass coin, and they would pass it off as a silver coin. And so storekeepers would take a punch and they would hammer a hole into it so they could see on the inside. They would test the coin to see if it is really silver or really whatever metal it was supposed to be. They would examine and approve it. For me, I examine and test spiderwebs. Because you live in Madeira and you've seen enough black widows to know that you really don't want them around. And the way that you can test and find if there's a black widow is you just kind of push on its web a little bit. The web of a black widow has resistance and it does not stick to your hand. If you touch a web and it sticks to your hand, you're fine. Just reach in there and grab whatever you want. Probably not a black widow. <laughs> Probably the keyword. <laughs> But if you push against a web and it like, it pushes back and you push and it's like, don't reach in there. I have a friend, he was in first service, so I can tell you this. An otherwise very masculine man, and I, I joke with him about this, does not like black widows. So we've seen black widows. He will not step on it. He will not touch it. Like he needs like a pole in some distance. I'm like, I've seen you do a lot more dangerous things than step on a black widow. He's like, what if I miss? What if it climbs up my shoe 
into my pant leg. I'm like, okay. My grandfather used to just like grab them and squeeze them. That was like killing a black widow was just like, yeah, I'm the spray kind of guy. Like a little bit of a distance, but also I don't need a pull. So, but that's how we can approve. That's kind of what Paul means here. Maybe not with the black widows. I don't know if they have them in Israel or not. But, you know, you test it and you approve. Is this something that is what I'm expecting it to be? Because that's what Paul's saying is that your love will keep on growing so that you can approve, test, and know the things that are superior. They're better things. A lot of translations say what is most excellent. So you can test and approve and know what is excellent. And that idea has its roots in when I went to Goodwill and I saw this big expensive painting and I looked at it and I thought, wow, that seems like a good deal, I guess. It's like $299 and it's a big painting and it's in a nice frame. And so I pulled out my phone and went to the Google app and I'm like, I'll just take a picture and see what Google says. And eBay told me that they were all over the place for like 20 bucks. So... I didn't know the things that were excellent and superior, but I needed to test it. And that's what Paul's talking about, so that we can test the things to know what is excellent or superior, and that we may be blameless, pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Pure is a very long definition because it's a couple words put together into one word. It means to be judged. It means to be judged in the daylight to be judged in the daylight and found to be as expected. That's what pure means. It means to judge it where you can see it clearly and it's what you were told that it is. It's pure. It's exactly 100% of what you expected it to be. So if we take that verses 9 and 10, Paul is saying, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge, and in every kind of discernment, so that the reason that your love grows in knowledge and your love grows in discernment is so that you can approve and test the things that are best and that you may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. So our love that grows in knowledge is meant to help us know what is best, to be able to have wisdom and discernment enough to know the difference between what is not excellent and what is excellent so that we might live pure and blameless lives in the day of Christ Jesus. That's the picture here that Paul is giving. And then the final verse 11, he says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. <clears throat> Uh, I think it's in Ephesians, talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. But Paul here is talking about fruit of righteousness. And in this context, the types of things that Paul is looking at is righteousness is just the, the way of living before God that is right. Living a good life. And if God were to look at your life, he says, yes, you're doing it. That's righteousness. That's living rightly as God would say, this is my standard. Now, of course, we're not perfect, but that's our goal is to live a life that is filled with the fruit of righteousness. So the fruit of righteousness would then be the things that come out of or off a tree that is living a righteous life. So if you're living a righteous life, there should be some evidences. You should have some of those fruits of the Spirit. Your love should be increasing. Your joy should be increasing that you're growing in knowledge. And so some of the things that Paul lists here that would be evidences of fruit of righteousness would be our love for God, our love for others, the knowledge of God, the discernment that he talks about in verse 9, our righteous living, pure living, blameless living, and that ultimately that those qualities each come, notice the middle of verse 11, those qualities, those characteristics, those fruits come through Jesus Christ. Those things are not in and of ourselves because we can't produce good fruit on our own. They come through Christ Jesus. And then they're also not for us, but they are to the glory and praise of God. 
which is the whole point of this whole section. That our love would grow in knowledge and grow in discernment. That we would approve and test and know the things that are superior and excellent. That our lives would be pure and blameless. That we'd be filled and overflowing with fruit that comes through Christ. Why all of that? To the glory and praise of God. Because our lives lived rightly before God should result in glory and praise to him. That's the point and the purpose of our lives is that we might reflect the glory of God and live rightly before him. That's what Paul's talking about in cultivating these fruits, cultivating this kind of lifestyle, demonstrates that we love God. When we live this way, we demonstrate that we love God, and the overflow of that is that we love others. That's Christ-like living. That's Paul's purpose writing to the Philippians. Not just telling them what to do, but demonstrating and modeling. If you live this way, you reflect Christ. If you live this way, you grow in maturity. If you live this way, you give glory and praise to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have shown us a superior way, a greater way, a better way that our lives might reflect you. Lord, we ask for open doors and opportunities to share that good news, the hope of salvation. Lord, we know that the day we die on earth is simply the day that we join you in eternity, that we see you for who you really are without the the dimness that we see now, but we'll have full clarity, a perfect picture of what you are. And Lord, until that day, we ask that our lives would, to the best of our abilities through Christ, reflect your wonderful nature, the excellence that you are, and that we might demonstrate that we love others because you have first loved us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.